Thanks again, Jason, and welcome here at the Brentwood campus, or if you're watching live stream, we're glad you are with us today. Uh, we live in a corrupt world. We live in a fallen system, a broken system, a broken world, and it is not merely a cultural war. It's not merely a turf war. It technically is a spiritual war. Uh, we are taught in Scripture that there is a warfare going on with thrones, dominions, and principalities. Those are things we cannot see, we cannot experience. And the believer himself or herself is not in that battle, fighting that battle, but we are, in a sense, collaterally being affected by that battle that is real. As believers in Christ, we are seduced by living in the world, and yet, hopefully, not of the world. I've said it many times, my greatest challenge in my own Christian life is to ask and answer the question, do I look any different than the world around me? Is my life being lived differently than the world in which I am parked? And one of the themes we're going to see in our passage in Genesis 19 is that you can camp too long beside sin. And when you do, it will affect you. Uh, This weekend and next weekend are PG-13 weekends. We're going to be talking about sexually immoral subjects. So if you have younger children in here now, you didn't get the alert in the last week, it might be a good time for you to say, hmm, let me slip out and watch this later and make a decision. But this weekend and next weekend, we are dealing with a passage that is quite explicit. It is the Word of God, and we will unapologetically look at it and expound it as best we can. When the reader came to Genesis chapter 19, or the hearer of the story started hearing this account recorded and explained, um, it would have a tension And the text is marked with a huge tension. The movement of the verbs from chapter 18 all the way through 19, it is a torsion of a book. It places, it it rapidly advances, it slows down, it can be uncomfortable at times, and that's part of the narrative's way of bringing the reader in. Looking back on Genesis, we have Genesis chapter 6 where the flood would come and destroy the entire world except for Noah and his family. We have a parallel passage now where the wickedness has gotten so big that God is going to act, interact with this group in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he will destroy them because of their wickedness. Chapters 18 of Genesis and 19 form parallels. And if you're a Bible study fellowship or a precept student or a person that just likes to study the Bible, I can't encourage you enough to take those two passages side by side this week and put a chart together and make comparisons and contrasts with what's happening in chapter 18 and 19. We can't develop it in a 30 or 40 minute exposition, but it is a gold mine of comparisons and contrasts of how God's angels come to Abraham and how God's angels come to, to Lot in the two different trajectories of the story. Um, justice, we need to understand, is a two-edged sword. God is going to judge. Uh, we live in a time and an era, a climate of grace. In fact, we're, we're somewhat averse to the idea of judgment or that God ever calling something wrong and dealing with it. We're so grace-oriented, we're so kind and loving and tolerant-oriented in our culture, we are loath to think about God's judgment. But judgment is always a two-edged sword. If a crime has been committed and justice is served... The, the sword cuts two way. It cuts to bring justice to the person who was the victim. In order to do that, it must cut to bring punishment to the guilty. 
So when a person is accused of a crime, alleged crime, he goes through, he or she goes through a process, they're found guilty, that person will suffer consequences. The sword will cut to judge that person to incarceration, maybe capital punishment, but the victim then says they found justice. And you'll see people interviewed after a big case. Well, justice was served today. There's closure on this in my life. What does that mean? The sword of justice cuts two ways. There's no way to dispense mercy alone without dispensing judgment to the wicked and to punish those who are guilty. Justice is a two-edged sword. Now, sadly, we're all seduced by the sin of the world. And one of the questions I want you to think about as we look at this passage is, how closely are you encamped to sin? Because the more closely we're aligned with sin, when we camp too long by the culture of sin, we become like it. It never works the other way. It always works to affect the believer. How are we in the world and not of the world? That's the challenge and that's the dilemma. Well, let's look at Genesis 19. It is a long text. I need your thinking caps on. 19, the first 14 verses are a unit. We'll take them apart. We'll look at most of the chapter today and we'll finish it next week. Let me read just the first three verses of Genesis 19 where God's warning that judgment is coming because of the unbridled sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, Please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he, Lot, urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. God sends these two angels to signal to Lot that destruction is coming. Judgment is going to come to Sodom. Um, again, if you were to compare chapter 18, where in a sense Abraham is negotiating with God, will you spare them if there's so many righteous, remnant of righteous, and God tells him he will. Uh, the urging of, of Lot here is interesting. We learn a number of things about Lot. He's sitting as a judge, we'll talk more about in a minute. But Lot knew the wickedness of his own city well enough to say, you can't stay out in the open square. This passage is often... Uh, refitted to talk about the sin of hospitality or the lack thereof or a misappropriation of hospitality. That is a sub-theme of the text, but that is not the major part of the storyline. The extent of the wickedness had gotten so bad, chapter 18, verses 21-22, that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. These angels are simply there to tell Lot, this is going to happen, you got to get out. God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. There is no stopping this. It's trying to rescue the remnant to get them out of the wake of that destruction. The verbs are heavy. We don't have time to look at them all, but you'll notice they're sitting at the gate. He rises up to meet him. He he bows down to see him. He turns aside. The verbal movement moves this story along at quite a quick pace, much quicker than we can look at it and bring it into our context. But Sodom's wickedness, however, is not content with letting these two messengers just be in Lot's house. The wickedness of Sodom is going to knock on the door and demand they turn these men over to them. We read that in verses 4 through 11. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all people from every quarter. 
And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out, uh, went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one, referring to Lot, came in as an alien. And already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, so both great and small, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. These men are bent on taking these young men, we call them young men, these angels, out and to have immoral uh, sexual relationships with them. Now, again, the tension of the text, they're surrounded, the house is surrounded, they're outnumbered, the door's being crushed in, and the hand is a motif in the passage, again, for you Bible students. The hand is a double play here, the hand of getting, protecting the men, but the hands of the angels are going to protect Lot. The angels came to protect Lot. Lot thinks he's protecting the angels, and it will turn around where the angels will indeed be the one who protect Lot. Um, the phrase have relations with them has to be addressed. The intent of the wicked sodomites is a sexual, immoral, it's homosexual rape, to put it as plainly as I can. That is their intent. That's what the text is saying. That was the design. If you read the NIV, it bluntly puts it this way, bring them out so that we can have sex with them. And for the NIV, that's a pretty brassy interpretational read, and I would agree with their rendering. Have relations in Hebrew is from a word yada or yadag, depends on how you pronounce it, yada or yadag, which means to know. So both Adam with Eve and Cain with his wife knew their wives and they conceived a child. To know someone, in that sense, yadag is a sexual intercourse with his, with his wife, both Adam and for Cain and other places. In Judges chapter 19, we have a striking and very complex and difficult passage that parallels this in a creepy way. Listen to just 19, chapter 19, verse 22 of Judges. The men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, bring out the men who came into your house so that we may have relations with him. The same word. Bring out the man so we can rape him as a homosexual act. That is what's going on. You can't miss the plain, clear use of the term. You can't amalgamate it. You can't anesthetize it with an analgesic and say this is about hospitality. It does injustice to the word, to the story, to the common sense, and to Lot's response to these men when he has this strange, bizarre, hypocritical solution. Take my virgin daughters and ravish them as you will, but don't hurt these two messengers of God. All these are poor attempts by liberal scholars and those with very clear political agenda to take homosexuality as a sin nature 
which we won't stop there. We'll talk about other sins as well. Hang on. But to take that one sin and anesthetize it, to clean it up, say it's not sin, it's not wrong, when the text says just the opposite, it's very clear, and it does injustice to the text to say otherwise. The Bible is clear. The intent here is homosexual rape of these two men. Well, Lot is a hypocrite. In chapter uh, 19, verse 8, he's willing to immorally sacrifice his virgin daughters to protect these two men. Now, we can't drill down too far in Lot's thinking, but we can make some pretty good conclusions from the storyline. It's a wicked city. He knows it's wicked. He calls them his brothers. He's got some filial relationship with them. He says, don't do this wicked thing, but here's a substitute. And so any father of a daughter, any parents of daughters wonder, why in the world would you offer such a bizarre option? Well, at the moment of this crisis, the angels' hands are going to be the, the ones who are going to intercede. Alan Ross writes, even this perverted good was rejected from those bent on evil. You can have my virgin daughters and literally you can do whatever you want. That's what the text would say. Do whatever you want to them. But you can't touch these men. And so this perverted option is rejected. So the hypocrite then has to be dragged to safety out of the sinful situation. God's angels warn that this judgment is real and it's coming, verses 12 to 14. Then the two men said to Lot, whom else do you have here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Twice you have destroy in the text, three times destroy in the text. goes back to Genesis chapter 6. God is going to destroy the earth. Judgment has been executed. It's going to happen. Nothing's going to stop this. Get out, Lot. Uh, Verse 14, so Lot went and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. Back to chapter 18, verse 20 and 21. The outcry had gotten so great, God is going to send the angels to dispatch destruction. Now we have the same language. The outcry has gotten so great. Go back in your mind to Cain and Abel. When Cain kills his brother Abel and the blood goes to the ground, what does the Lord say? His blood is crying out. An injustice has occurred. A murder has occurred. Something has to be done. The sword of justice will cut in order to uh, protect and give mercy to the one, the victim. He must execute judgment on the guilty. And Cain will be marked and he'll be sent off. There'll be a consequence of his sin. The sword of God's justice always cuts two ways. Now the outcry harkens back to that, harkens back to the debate that Abraham is having with God about will you destroy it? There's 50, 45, 10, will you destroy the city? Will you save them? But when the angels come, this is imminent. It's going to happen. Now don't miss the comparison and contrast. In chapter 18, the angels come and they leave Abraham with a promise and a blessing. When the angels come in chapter 18, they leave Lot with imminent judgment and destruction. It couldn't be more opposite of what it means to live righteously by faith for the life of Abraham versus to live in camp too close to sin and Lot to be the hypocrite that he had become. The final icing on the cake for the Hebrew ear, the English ear can't hear it, but the word jesting that you find in, uh, in the passage is a, is a harken back to the name Isaac. Isaac, we talked about Yitzhak, 
and that is the laughter, and it's a double entendre. Abraham laughed either because he was joyful or couldn't believe it. When Sarah laughs, the Lord confronts her on it. She says he didn't laugh. No, she did. Uh, here we have them laughing, and laughter is a motif we'll continue to develop all the way through chapter 21. But these sons-in-laws, and, and by the way, we don't know if they were Hebrew marriage uh, engagement was more uh, betrothal was much more than an engagement but not quite a marriage we don't have anything in our western view of what a betrothal was we don't know if these sons-in-laws were in fact married to these daughters the two virgin daughters obviously were not yet married so it would lend one to think they were betrothed um, but we just don't know for sure they perhaps were to marry soon but in any event they think abraham's laughing and there's a it's a wordplay irony here he comes and says, get up, it's going to be destruction. And they say, you're, you're, you're. they laugh at him and mock back at him. The work can also be rendered mocking uh, at Abraham, at Lot's uh, plea for them to leave. Well, what enamors Christians, what enamors believers that we camp so long near sin uh, is abhorrent to God. And God will deal with it. Verses 15 through 22. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Or you will be swept away. Again, notice the verbs. We have this up, take, up, get. This move, this movement. And you need to get out of here or you're going to be swept away. So the text moves quickly in the punishment of the city. Verse 16, but he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters. Go back up to verse 10. The men reached out their hands and brought Lot in. And we're meant to see this vivid picture of these angels who are rescuing Lot from the crowd, from the wickedness, and now from the destruction. They're going to drag them. They're going to be dra- dragged out of the city. Uh, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, verse 16. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they brought him outside, one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. Judgment's coming. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have sworn to me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small? that my life may be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you've spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar, which means small. It's a word play. Um, Once this wealthy uh, migrant Bedouin lifestyle that had so many flocks and herds he couldn't stay with Abraham and his flocks and herds had so many servants there were rivalry between them has moved camp near the city next to the city lived in the city become a judge in the city and now he his wife and two daughters are all that are going to get out the skin the clothes on their backs and be pulled out of the city to be saved before God destroys them um, they're going to be swept away but he hesitated the hypocrite his heart is tied to the city of wickedness he's complicit he's part of it notice your text verse 16 but he hesitated verse 18 but lot said verse 19 
but I cannot escape. What kind of rescue attempt is happening to Lot? Wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. I can't, I can't. What about this? He's objecting the entire way. Don't you get it, Lot? It's going to be destroyed. It will be gone. Get out with your life. Go to the mountains. Now, Lot's quote prayer back to the angels more of a plea is a combination of some precise language which shows the we might call it the thread of righteousness that lot did possess but his thinking is very co-opted by the culture this worldly behavior this worldly believer doesn't make sense he says he doesn't say thank you that i found favor in verse 19 he said your servant found favor it's a declarative sentence. It goes, I found favor. Uh, I got your loving kindness. You saved my life. Now I want one more deal. And this negotiating is, again, compared and contrasted to Abraham, who's negotiating, quote unquote, because he cares about people. He doesn't want the whole town of Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. He cares about life. And we have the contrast of the nephew who's wheedling change, wheedling a deal. Derek Kidner writes, the grip of the present world, even on those who love it with a bad conscience. Let me stop there. That is a $25 sentence. The grip of this present world, even on those who love it with a bad conscience. Don't we love the world with a bad conscience? We camp so long beside sin, we love it, but we have a bad conscience about it. But we still love it. And before long, that love overtakes God's justice and holiness, and we are living in the city, judging them. Again, Derek Kidner, the grip of this present world, even on those who love it with a bad conscience, is powerfully shown in this last-minute struggle. The warning to remember Lot's wife, from Jesus in Luke 17, gives us reason to see ourselves potentially as lingering, quibbling, Quibbling like Lot himself, wheedling a last concession as he's dragged to safety. Now listen to this. Not even brimstone will make a pilgrim of him. He must have his little Sodom again if life is to be supportable. I don't want to go to the mountains. I don't want to go away from this. There's a little city called Zoar. It's a wordplay. It means small. Can I get this one little small concession? I, I might die if I go to the mountains, so give me a city. And the angel acquiesces in a strange way and says, okay, everything's going to be destroyed but that little city. So in the aftermath of this, we see a small township that overlooks nothing but scorched earth. And that's what Lot wanted. Well, God is going to preserve the righteous, verses 25 through 28. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife, from behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. True to his word, the Lord brings destruction. The sword of justice comes. The exact nature of fire and brimstone will be debated until the end of time. It represents divine judgment. What is important in the narrative is that when Lot looked and saw the, what we call the fertile valley, let's just call it that for illustration's sake, when he separates from Abram, Abram at the time, he says, take wherever you want, and he looks for the fertile ground, that's where he goes. Well, that fertile ground is now parched earth. 
And so the plays again, the humble Abram, Abraham, who lets his nephew make the choice, the humble Abraham who intercedes for people that are wicked, the humble Abraham who rescues his, his nephew one other time, the humble Abraham is concerned for his nephews and his family system over against, can, can you give me a city? I mean, can you, can you do one more thing for me? Never mind that I'm saving your life. He's going to ply a little more out of it. The extensive nature of destruction goes back to chapter 13, 10. Lot lifted his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan. Interesting, if you read that, Pat, let me just read it. Uh, his eyes saw all the valley and was well watered everywhere. It was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So when he picked this chapter 13, the prophecy, in a sense, sort of fulfills itself because it's all destroyed except that last mention of Zoar is where he's going to live. Well, the Lord brings destruction, but the Lord is nevertheless faithful and righteous and good. Verses 27 to 29. Now, Abraham arose early in the morning. Now, notice we've taken a shift. The narrative has been about Lot's discussion with these angels who are rescuing him and destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the narrative takes a shift back to Abraham. He rose early in the morning, we're going to see that phrase again, and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. The narrative switches back to the patriarch. 29 is a summary in my Bible. It's circled. I have the word summary of the chapter written by it because I forget next time I come and read it again. God remembered uh, his covenant. He remembered Abraham. When he remembers Noah, it's not that he, oh, I forgot about Noah out there in the ark. I forgot about Abraham and the promise I made to him. Remembering is language of the covenant. God had made a promise that he was going to effect a covenant with him that won't be changed. It can't be broken or abrogated. And so here he's, the text is telling us God made a covenant. And that covenant was to see Abraham's life fulfilled to be a blessing to the world. That covenant won't be changed. He destroyed the cities. He does remember Abraham. He listens to Abraham's plea and prayer in the prior chapter. He saves his nephew and what only becomes his two daughters because Sarah looked back. Lots of exposition about what Sarah meant, when, what happened when Sarah looked back. The point of the story is they camped so close to sin, they couldn't extrapolate following God. They preferred to live in sin, in a culture. They loved the culture. They didn't want to leave it. And she turns back, looking back her affections to Sodom and Gomorrah, not following her saviors, in this case, two angels, who are getting her out of the destructive path. Alan Ross writes an excellent summary of this chapter. Genuine faith is often hard to detect. Here was an upright citizen, hospitable, generous, a leader of the community who was a judge, meaning he would screen out wickedness from his town and advise on good living. He knew truth and justice, righteousness and evil. Pause. You remember the story of Ruth and Moabitess and Boaz. And when Boaz wants to marry her, he goes to the elders at the gate. 
It's an image of the Old Testament. This, is, this would be the city council to us today. This is where the powers that be religiously made decisions for people when they had disputes. There were no attorneys like we think of today, so you went and had your dispute solved by the elders at the gate. And so that's when the, the uh, Sodomite, the, the Sodom and Gomorrah residents say to him, you're acting like a judge. You're an outsider, an alien. No, you're a judge. Well, he was. He'd worked his way in from the encampment to being part of it. Continuing Ross, in spite of his denunciation of the lifestyle of his people, he preferred the good life of their society. He preferred living comfortably in the city versus living in the hills. He lived in an encampment experience like Bedouins, like Abraham had done, but as he got close and cozy to the city, he preferred the city living. The hour of truth came when the Lord interrupted his life, Ross continues. His true loyalty was revealed as godly. But in the process, his past hypocrisy was uncovered. The saint had pitched his tent near the evil city, but the evil city controlled his life. Oh, he was moral. He knew great evil when he thought. He opposed sodomy and homosexuality. Ironically, though, he would sacrifice his daughter's virginity to fend off the vice of evil men. He would escape the judgment by the grace of God, but his heart had become part of the world. His wife was just too attached to the city to follow the call of grace, and his daughters were not uncomfortable with the immorality of their father. Hypocrisy was revealed from a visitation on high. As long as the Lord left him alone, he would hold on to his faith, but live in Sodom. Ultimately, he could not have both. Sodom would destroy him if the Lord did not destroy Sodom. And next weekend you get the ugly part, the end of the chapter, end of the story of what happens with his daughters who obviously have no trouble with gross immorality. A number of observations and lessons from the text. Let's remind ourselves that all of us are sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. The base of Calvary is level ground. You and I aren't better sinners than somebody else. We've got to remind ourselves of this again and again. Christians can become a little proud, can become a little bit puffy when they think, you know, well, I don't live the way those people live. Level ground at Calvary. We're all sinners. We all deserve hell. All of us are on that proverbial freight train going to hell without a handbrake. There's none righteous, no, not one. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we have obviously a a culture today that the SCOTUS has now sanctified, quote-unquote, the law of the land, that you can have a civil, a same-sex marriage. This is only the beginning. It's going to get more and more complex, and I think it's going to get a lot worse. One of the arguments you often hear from this so-called same-sex proponent group is that Jesus never said anything about same-sex marriage. He never said you couldn't have a gay marriage. Um, People who say such things are doing it for a lot of reasons. Uh, Number one, they may or may not have ever read their Bible. Number two, they are misinformation-oriented. Number three, they may be outright lying. And I want to give you just two references. We don't have time to exposit them. You can jot these down. In Matthew chapter 11 and Luke 17, uh, Matthew 11 is a key passage where Jesus is making the argument that he performed all these miracles in Matthew 11, and the people came out from the Decapolis to see these miracles. And they don't believe him still. And just in part, he says, he began to denounce the cities where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that occurred today in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
he fast forwards. Uh, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would remain here to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you in the day of judgment. Christ is saying judgment came to Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. God, the sword cut and four people, technically three, survive and get out of it. One dies on the way out. And he says, if they'd have seen what you've seen, they'd have repented. That's the merciful side of God's sort of justice. God is just to let us all go to hell. He's merciful to offer salvation to any who respond by faith. Never confuse those two issues. And when people say, a God like that, I could never believe in a God like that. God's not fair. They're making God in their image. And what they don't understand is we all deserve hell. You and me as well. There are none who are better than others. The challenge that we have living in this culture is the difference between being tempted by a sin versus identified by a sin. You can be tempted by a sin and not identified by it. You can be tempted and fall into sin. You can fall into sin and repent and ask for forgiveness and confess over and over and over again. But once you're identified with the sin, when you choose to say, this is who I am, you go to a different level. And what the same-sex argument has done with the LGBTQ, meaning questioning now, what this community has done is said, this is how we're made. This is our identity. You can't tell me that's not my identity. But it doesn't work both ways. Now, I know this is going to upset some of you. If I haven't already, I'll continue to upset some of you. Um, I am an adulterer in my heart. Now, if I told Cindy, uh, Cindy, I'm an adulterer in my heart. God has made me an adulterer. And there's nothing that can stop me from acting out my identity. This is foolish. I've prayed for this to go away. I've fasted. I've gone, I mean, we could, we could concoct this whole story. I've done all, and I still have lust in my heart. Ergo, I am an adulterer. That's my identity. Live with it. Deal with it. Fill in any sin you want. Addictions, pedophilia, transgendered, bisexuality, covetousness, avarice, greed. Fill in any blank you want. It's fine to say we are tempted by such sins because we all are tempted by such sins. It's a completely different thing to say this is who I am. And... uh, forgive the seemingly self-promotion, but if you go to Michael in context, I wrote a blog, and at the bottom of that blog, there are five extraordinary resources I didn't write, five extraordinary resources at the bottom of that blog, uh, John Piper, um, Russell Moore, uh, Mark Bailey, and some others that are, are short, they're to the point, they're very well written, smarter people than me have written on it very succinctly. And one of the things I appreciate about Piper is he said, once you have said a same-sex marriage, you've sanctified sin, or you've institutionalized, it was his word, What other sins can we institutionalize? And this is what our culture in a civic place has done. Yes, they're going to knock on our door. They're going to ask Lloyd or Bill or me or Rob, one of the pastors. At some point, they're going to say, Michael, Bill, Lloyd, we love fellowship. We've been a part of fellowship. Maybe you're here now. I'd love for you to perform a wedding for us. We're going to say lovingly and kindly, we believe God designed marriage between a man and a woman. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That was the design. That's what we believe. And I hope we're not the test case. There will be test cases. And churches will be drug into this. Christian schools will be drug into it. We're seeing the nonprofit profit margin happen now for those in the profit world are being sued 
whether it's a cake maker, a photographer, a wedding venue, a Christian owner, operator, if you're in the for-profit world, all bets are off. These things are going to knock on your door, and at some point in time, they're going to have to make a decision. That's the law of the land. Now, you and I can approach this lots of ways. We can get mad about it. We can get all spun up about it. We can write letters. We can write blogs, read blogs. Fine. All that's good. Um, Here's my suggestion. We were made for this. The believer in Jesus Christ was not meant to live in a world that was the, the garden and everything worked well. The believer in Jesus Christ is a broken, repentant, shameful, embarrassing, up and down Christian experience where we win, we lose, we sin, we succeed, we confess, we repent. We're hopefully growing in Christ over the years and we live in a world that needs to know what we learned. That we're all sinners, that Christ died for our sins, that he loves us, he offers a free gift of salvation, he offers a free gift of eternal life to any and all who repent. I love what Matt Moore said when we interviewed Matt. He said, it's not tolerant to say you can love a person who lives in sin. That's not love. Love is calling a person to repent. And if I was having an affair, if Lloyd or Bill or Rob was having an affair, if they were doing something stupid, our job would be to go to them and say, I love you so much, I will call you to, I will not let you do this. We're going to fight about this. And I'm going to smile when I hit them. <laughs> and they me. Michael, we're not going to let you be stupid because love doesn't let a teenager get into drugs. Love doesn't let a young child be over-sexualized when they're still in your home. Love doesn't let things happen. That's not tolerant. That's idiocy. You're protecting people from harm. We're all sinners. Don't forget that. So as long as you're struggling with same-sex attraction, bisexual, transgendered, identity, avarice, greed, immorality, pornography, as long as you're struggling with it, fine. Keep the fight. Keep the faith. Keep the struggle. Don't let it identify you. That's not who you are. Another passage I want you to jot down, we don't have time to look at, is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Our identity before we came to Christ, we were those things. I don't see anybody saying, I'm a reviler by nature. I want to be a reviler. Let me be a reviler. Isn't it kind of silly? We grade sin on, you know, felony, misdemeanor, so forth and so on. God doesn't grade sin that way. Sin is sin because we're all sinners. Such were some of you. Does that mean the temptations go away? There's not a person in this room who's honest and won't say they're not tempted. We're all tempted all the time. As I began, we live in a seductive culture. We've camped very close to sin. And this is the, que- the question that pains my spiritual life. I look so much like the world in which I live. How am I any different than the culture that I've camped beside? As insulated as we may feel in middle of Tennessee, we're still camped beside ten, sin. And when you start like Lot acquiescing it, yeah, I know it's, yeah, I, I don't like it, but it's okay. They're true to themselves. They're not hurting anyone. It's the law of the land. You've just been seduced. You've just been seduced. Are you angry at them? Are you mad at them? No. Any more than you should be angry or mad that a young boy who's addicted to pornography at 12 years of age on your home computer. 
You're heartbroken. You're sad. But the shame and the guilt and all those consequences that psychologists can pare back all they want, that is a sign that says this is wrong. Very few people come out and say, I am an addicted pornographer. I'm an addicted womanizer, and I'm going to conquest any woman that will go to bed with me. I'm an addicted uh, woman. I'm a cougar. I'm going to go after every young man I can go after. We don't identify such things because there's an intrinsic shame, appropriate guilt, an awareness, a conscience. No, we don't do those things. Now, Cindy, I've married 35 years this coming July. Gosh, next week. Goodness gracious, I better get her a card. I set myself up to tell you this. I set myself up. For 35 years, I've been faithful to that woman. I'm not any better than any one of you sitting in this room. By God's Holy Spirit, by self-control, and a community of people that would kill me, I've been faithful to my wife and she to me. Does that mean I'm never tempted? No. Does that mean I never lust? No. I will not be identified as an adulterer or a womanizer. That's the nonsense of the world talking. I'm identified as a sinner that's despicable and saved by the grace of Jesus Christ for reasons I don't understand. And the Holy Spirit indwells me to make me into something that I am not. And that transformative power is at all of our fingertips as we are in his word, controlled by his spirit, surrounded by his people to help us on the way to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. The fact that he couldn't get his potential sons-in-laws to come with him tells you about the lack of leadership in his home. He'd acquiesce to everything. Unlike Abraham, who goes and rescues him out of that mess once before and pleads God to rescue him out of it once again. And that's what the storyline is telling us. This is a life of faith. Is Abraham perfect? Far from. Far from. His sins are recorded. But look what Lot did. And Lot is recorded is a hypocrite, and the story ends in a horrific way. Well, much more we could say, many more passages. A couple of them that I would highly encourage you to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, and 2 Peter 2, 1 to 15. I want to encourage you to go home and read this. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 15. Read it in the car on the way home and analyze how this is precisely who our culture is right now. 2 Peter 1, uh, 2 Peter uh, 2, 1 to 15. Those verses will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. We're in a world, men and women, and we're believers in Jesus Christ. I want you to walk out of here not with fear or discouragement or anger. I want you to walk out of here smiling at the future. He's won this battle. If you know Christ, you're saved, you're forgiven, you're in good shape. Are you going to sin? Yes, you're going to sin all your life. Come back to the cross. Come back to forgiveness. Come back to Calvary. Come back to community. Come back to people that will help you along our tripping journey. Don't identify yourself by a sin. Don't live in a closet in secret with your sin. The community of Christ can handle that. If they can't, find one that can. Because you've got to have God's word, God's spirit, and God's people to make it through this life. But smile at the future. And I truly believe you and I were made for this. This happened on our watch. How will we respond? With love? With truth? With kindness? Father, we do love you. We don't like some things that happen in the world. 
we know that grace is available always, but justice at times is unstoppable. And when you return the next time, you come with that sword, and there are no more chances. For those who live in between, help us to live courageously by faith, not by fear, to smile at the future because you are our King and our Lord and our Savior. We don't have to know all the answers or have everything right. Don't let the world teach us theology. Don't let the world tell us what to think. May the community at Fellowship be more and more emboldened and strengthened by your word, confident this is the very word of God on which our lives depend. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to love you well in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for your patience. God bless you. Have a great week.